Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm back here on the Tom Hartman Program. One, a couple things I just wanted to point your attention to, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. Amanda Carpenter is a former, the former communications director for Senator Ted Cruz, Republican. And she has, writing on Twitter, pointed out a screen capture of, one of, of Trump's tweet on January 6th at 6 p.m. This is right after they finally emptied Trump's supporters out of the Capitol building. Five people lay dead or dying. And Trump goes to Twitter and she says, read this very carefully. This is Amanda Carpenter, the former Cruz communications director. She says, read this very carefully. It's celebratory. It's all there. Essentially, yep, this is what happens when you don't reelect me. He pushes the big lie some more and wraps the mob in love. What more do we need to see? So here's what Trump tweeted at 6 p.m. on January 6th. As the police were finally emptying the Capitol of people who had crapped on the floors, smeared feces on the walls, peed all over the place, damaged some of the paintings, and terrified members of Congress, built a gallows outside, were on the hunt for Mike Pence so that they could hang him. One woman said that she, was, she came to put a bullet in Nancy Pelosi's brain. This is what Donald Trump tweeted. Quote, These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. That's Trump's tweet. Honest to God. I don't know what more you need to convict this guy of treason. Additionally, with regard to Marjorie Trader Greene, uh, 11 Republicans voted to kick her off her committee assignments. If one of these Republicans represents you, I would strongly suggest that you call Congress at 202-224-3121 and tell them that you appreciate their courage. It's not often that Republicans show courage in the face of fascism. Usually they roll over, but 11 Republicans did. I'm going to read their names. If, one, if, if you hear a name of somebody who represents you, these are in Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, Florida, California, and New Jersey. If, if one, of these folks, one of these Republican members of the House of Representatives represents you, call them and say thanks. The number for Congress is 202-224-3121. They are Adam Kinzinger. Republican of Illinois, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Nicole Maliotakis, I think it's pronounced, in New York, of New York, John Katko of New York, Fred Upton of Michigan, Carlos Jimenez of Florida, Chris Jacobs of New York, Young Kim of California, Maria Salazar of Florida, Chris Smith of New Jersey, and Mario Diaz-Balart of Florida. Profiles in courage. Small step. But profiles encourage. Okay, all that said, let's get back to your calls. Steve in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to WSLR. 
My pleasure. My question is, and I think this is just as important as COVID-19 relief, is we need to go back to the fairness in media and make it for the Internet, too. If you do not go to that, we will continue to have this country divided because two different sides are getting different information. I mean, when these other right-wing TV stations just outright lie, these people, if you see the interviews, these people have no clue what the facts are. And you can't say you can't yell fire in a building. I agree, Steve. I I absolutely agree with your analysis of the problem. The fairness doctrine is not the solution. The fairness doctrine did not prevent lies before, and it won't prevent lies in the future. And besides that, once you give the government the power to decide who's lying and who's not, and then you put Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz in charge of the government, you got a much bigger problem than you have right now. But there are solutions to this. And one of them is for progressives to start building a media infrastructure. And another is what Mark Warner, uh, the, the Senator Mark Warner just uh, introduced or is preparing to introduce, which is rewriting Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act to limit the liability protections of groups like Facebook for allowing murderous plots to to hatch on their platforms. So, you know, there there are steps we can take, but there's no simple answer. Rush Limbaugh pitched this thing for 20 years that the fairness, the doing away with the fairness doctrine made his show possible. He said that over and over and over again. It was a lie. It was always a lie. And there was talk radio, uh, right wing and left wing. Actually, the preponderance of it was left wing. It was Alan Berg out of, out of Colorado. He had a huge national following with a left wing talk radio show, entirely left wing, no balance, right? Entirely left wing up until, uh, you know, the mid 80s when a couple of skinheads assassinated him in the parking lot of, a, of the radio station. And then Rush Limbaugh stepped into that vacuum. But Limbaugh's lie that the fairness doctrine was keeping him off the air lives on. And and sadly, um, there, there's not a simple solution that can be legislatively passed, but we can uh, limit we can limit the limitations of liability to these corp- to these giant internet companies, and we really need to build a uh, a solid uh, infrastructure. Uh, progressive media infrastructure. It's already, you know, the piece, a lot of the pieces are already here with Free Speech TV and with uh, many of our uh, progressive radio stations and, and the Pacifica Network. It needs to be built on. It needs to grow. Uh, Wynn in Solon, Maine. Hey, Wynn, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, talking about oligarchy, I agree with 100%. And you referred to the Reagan Revolution. Um, mm-hmm. And I also agree that and do firmly believe that Americans need to understand what happened, uh, starting with Reagan. And Reagan today is still sold as some kind of a god when he was nothing but a clown and a toady for the wealthy people. But my question to you is, how come it's referred to as a Reagan revolution when what it was, in fact, and could more accurately be referred to as a devolution? I'm just well, the Reagan revolution... As a revolution, it was a devolution. I, I, I don't disagree with your analysis, When The reason that I refer to it as the Reagan Revolution is because that's what Reagan referred to it as. That's what Republicans have been referring to it as for, for 40 years now. And I want to take their language and flip it upside down. You'll recall, if you're old enough, that, that prior to the late 80s, liberal uh, was a word that people wore proudly, including some Republicans like Nelson Rockefeller. And then post, you know, then Rush Limbaugh went on a crusade to turn liberal into a curse word uh, to the point where by, you know, 1993, Bill Clinton wasn't willing to call himself a liberal. Well, I think that what we need to do is, is make it clear to everybody that this much vaulted Reagan revolution that you can find all over the Internet, all these articles praising the Reagan revolution, that it actually was a dis- one of the most destructive moments in American history. Franklin Roosevelt initiated a revolution with the New Deal. I'm sorry, we need our own language. We use our own terms. You know, I think that's yeah, the problem. We let the Republicans frame our language. You know how we talk. Well, about I'm things. I'm just using a I'm just using a word that has widespread or a phrase that has widespread currency and and uh, it, you know it's it's shorthand. It's that that's what happened in 1980. And Reagan actually did create a revolution. He changed our, the basic structure of our economic system, much like Franklin Roosevelt did in 1933. Only Reagan was committed to reversing 
the, the, the FDR revolution, as it were. Uh, we called it the New Deal. Um, but uh, these things have been branded, and I think using their brands against them, in my opinion, is the most effective way to do it. I totally understand what you're saying, Wynn. Respectfully disagree, but I get it. Thank you so much for the call here on the Tom Hartman Program. Your media support group for We the People, occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. We'll be right back. Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'd like to talk about the issue of a public accountability for officials. And David Schaefer, who was the former U.S. ambassador of war crimes, was suggesting that we could broaden the application of public health malpractice to account for the administration of public health during pandemics. So in that case, public health malpractice might become a war crime against humanity for leaders who intentionally unleash an infectious disease on their citizens or foreigners um, and or possibly categorize it as an environmental crime or if not murder, maybe a crime against humanity or involuntary manslaughter. But um, there has to be some accountability for public officials. And it, it, part of the, the, the problem could be under the rubric of what might be termed social murder, which was a phrase coined by Frederick Engels in the 19th century in Victorian England. And he's referring to conditions created by the privileged class, which inevitably lead to premature and unnatural death among the poorest classes. And that's really what's at the essence of this, hmm. because... We, we, and, and, of course, the question is, what measurement should we use, right? Should we use the measurement of Taiwan and Vietnam, who don't have any deaths, or perhaps the measurement of excess deaths? I mean, you know, what standard should they be judged by? But there has to be some accountability uh, among public officials. And half the world's deaths now really are confined among five countries, the U.S. being one of them, England, Brazil, uh, India, um, and uh, uh, the other country escapes me at the moment, but um, yeah, so that's, I, I would that's, be guessing that's my point. That. Yeah, I, th- I think your point is well taken, Jonathan, and um, and I love that and, definition and of social murder. Uh, by, by the way, I, I go got I, I got this idea, frankly, from a recent editorial uh, in the British Medical Journal, which was written by the ed- executive editor, whose name is uh, Cameron Abbasi. So that's that's where my hmm. idea comes from. Cool, cool. I think that there are uh, laws on the books right now that could be used against the Donald Trump and members of the Trump administration. Although it, uh, you know, the 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 idea of sovereign immunity is a huge, you know, roadblock to that. Um, and I'm not sure whether what you're talking about would pierce that. I, I think pretty much the only way to pierce sovereign immunity is to is to use, you know, internationally accepted norms uh, or, or standards or crimes or whatever, you know, like war crimes or crimes against humanity. And and it certainly seems that that Donald Trump could be charged with crimes against the uh, against humanity and brought up on those charges in The Hague. Uh, we have, you know, 20 percent of the world's deaths, 25 percent of the world's cases. We are only four percent of the world's population. We have the worst cases. We have the worst the worst rates of everything in the world because of what Donald Trump did, because of decisions that he made. And they were decisions that were not made in a vacuum. And he was advised against making those decisions. But he thought that he could hold off the pandemic until the election uh, to prevent the pandemic from hurting him in the election. And he badly miscalculated. Um, but I'm, I'm with you, Jonathan. I, I well, think that let, there let's needs to be some... Well, keep in mind, too, um, that um, uh, uh, Paul, Paul Singer, the infamous hedge fund manager, uh, issued a memo in beginning of February, locking down all of his employees, and everyone was out of the market by then, so they knew. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely knew. Well, in November of uh, 2019, that's when the United States notified Israel that something was going on in China that could be contagious and it could infect the Middle East. Welcome back, Phil, in Brookings, South Dakota. It says you disagree with me, Phil. You go to the front of the line. What's up? I don't disagree. I just, why are they giving the stimulus money to 
every people that like myself who donate, it hasn't been affected. I'm afraid they're going to break the country and eventually affect our Social Security. Our economy has slid into something beginning to resemble the Great Depression. This is the worst economic downturn we've had in a hundred years. And the way that you get out of an economic crisis like this is by stimulating the economy. There's, there's two things going on here. One of them is the money is going to people who are in desperate straits, absolutely desperate straits. One in seven children in America is going to bed hungry tonight. So. Number one, get that money out to those folks. But some people like you, Phil, don't need that money. So what, what happens when that money comes to you? Presumably you spend it. You may save it, but at least half, probably three quarters of the people who get it are going to go, hey, 1400 bucks. you know, I think I will buy that new sofa or whatever. And by spending that money, they stimulate the economy. The, the consistently most effective way to stimulate an economy is by putting money in the hands of people who are going to spend it, particularly low-income people. And so, you know, I, I think that that's a healthy thing where, you know, it's killing two birds with one stone as the, as the horrible old cliche goes, um, that people who are desperate are going are gonna to get some relief and people who aren't so desperate will have a little extra spending money, which will stimulate the economy, which will cause employers to hire people back to meet that stimulus, to meet that demand, and we can flip this economy into a virtuous cycle and pull it out of this tailspin that, that Trump has put it into, in my opinion. Jay in Chicago. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Nice to be able to get to talk to you. I, I'm wondering how serious or if, if D.C. statehood is going to come back up. It, it just seems like we see how these elections have gone. We see how they're going to go. I don't expect to keep Georgia and Arizona. Um, it seems like all the other issues we have could be greatly helped by an additional two senators. And, and think of it this way, if there were roughly 700,000 reliably Republican voters, do you think they'd be sitting out there unrepresented? Because I don't. And, yeah, and I agree with you, Jay. And they got, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if, if, uh, if Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and any other Democrats who, who want to hang on to this filibuster, if they would just get out of the way and let Chuck Schumer end the filibuster, we could have D.C. statehood in a week. It's a legislation to do so has already been introduced into both houses. Or it's for sure been introduced into the Senate. It was a couple days ago I reported on, on it on this program. Um, but the problem is it'll be subject to the filibuster. And, and, and let me just remind people, the filibuster was put into place in the 1830s by John C. Calhoun, Congress, a senator from South Carolina, specifically to block in the Senate any discussion of the abolition of slavery. Over in the House, they'd actually passed a law banning people from using the phrase slavery or abolition on the House floor in the 1830s. John, John C. Calhoun did this in the Senate with a device that he called the filibuster. The filibuster was exclusively used uh, to block discussions of abolition and slavery right up until 1865. And from 1865 until 1964, 99 years, 100% of the time that the filibuster was used, it was used to block civil rights legislation. It wasn't until 64 that they started using the filibuster for things like economic issues that, you know, where right-wing senators were protecting their big donors. So the history of the filibuster is disgusting. It is the history of promoting white power in the United States, promoting and maintaining white supremacy and suppressing, first of all, fighting the end of slavery, and then secondly, fighting reconstruction, and then thirdly, fighting civil rights. And that we have Democratic senators who are out there defending the filibuster just fries me. It blows my mind that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema would say that they want to support an archaic Senate rule, which is anti-democratic, in a democracy, I guarantee you, if Joe Manchin won his seat in West Virginia by one vote, he would still be the senator. So why is it that when the Senate, by one vote, passes legislation, that legislation doesn't get made into law? Because of the filibuster. Well, why do we have the filibuster? Again, John C. Calhoun, you know, the father of the Confederacy, we have the filibuster as a remnant of this vicious racism in the United States. And so if we can get rid of the filibuster, I think D.C. statehood is a lock. I think it's in the bag. And a good possibility of Puerto Rico's uh, statehood as well, Jay. And that, that would, you're absolutely right, start to balance this out. Right now, Democrats in the Senate, the Senate is 50-50. Democrats in the Senate represent 41 million more Americans than do the Republicans in the Senate.
Well, and yet the and yet kind of the point yeah. too. Yeah, is, is yeah, exactly. The, num- the numbers and, the numbers are off. The backup plan would have been to kind of see if you can cleverly redraw West Virginia to incorporate Washington D.C. and kind of shove everything a little more to the left that way. I don't think that one's going to happen. Well, that w- yeah, well, they're, and I don't think they're contiguous, um, so I don't I don't think you could do that. But uh, Jay, thank you for the call. I'm spot on. I am totally with you. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. We are going to do a national progressive town hall meeting for the next hour. Congressman Ro Khanna, representing the 17th District of California, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is with us for the hour, taking your calls. And Congressman, uh, welcome back. Uh, before we begin picking up calls, I'm wondering, you know, what's on your mind? What do you see going on here that we need to know about or you want to put out there? The big issue right now is the uh, COVID relief bill which is uh, just passed the Senate, the budget reconciliation, but it didn't have the $15 minimum wage. And uh, for some of us in the Progressive Caucus, that is uh, unacceptable, that uh, we, we need to do more than just provide people with a check. That obviously is necessary. We need to start making structural changes in our economy. And if in a pandemic with the value of essential work, if we're not going to raise the minimum wage now, which is a starvation wage at seven twenty-five. When are we going to do it? So uh, the Progressive Caucus has been having conversations that uh, it's a red line for us on the House bill. We need to have the minimum wage in there. And then the hope is that uh, the leadership, when they go to conference, will insist that the minimum wage is in the bill, the $15 wage that gets to the president's desk. That's great. That's great. I, I understand Joni Ernst of Iowa was the one who led the charge against having the minimum wage in this legislation. Yeah, I don't know what to no, say. No, did that. she lead the charge? She bragged about it. She, she tweeted yeah, out about it saying how proud she was of uh, eliminating the $15 yeah. minimum wage. You know, they don't listen yeah, to data. I mean, it, it, it's no longer theoretical. I mean, economists have studied this, and there's a consensus that at least to, from to $15, it does not have a negative impact on employment. If anything, it has positive impacts because people end up spending that money. Now, you can debate at some level, it may have a negative impact, but that's not the case at $15. And this has been studied extensively. And the, the, the frustrating part is people just don't, on the other side, look at the data. Yeah. Well, I think people on the other side are listening to the uh, very wealthy people uh, and corporations that would prefer to continue exploiting labor. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they give a damn about the data, uh, you know, respectfully. Um, but anyway, shall we pick up phone calls? Yeah, that would be great. OK, let's do it. Dave in Sarasota, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Hi, Tom and uh, Representative Kana. Great job you guys are both doing. Uh, my question is for Representative Canada, did has the House passed the um, Social Security 2100 Act? And I was wondering if, if it was possible to add amendments to it if it hasn't passed. And the reason why I was asking that is um, I know the, the Republicans wouldn't uh, uh, pass a true lockbox act, so they could you guys could add an amendment that says uh, there will be no changes to the benefits or eligibility age for Social Security uh, recipients until the money borrowed from the trust fund is paid back in full. Hmm. That, that, that's an interesting uh, idea, and we we passed it as you as you know last Congress. We have not passed it now, but uh, uh, clarifying that there's going to be no uh, issue with the the benefits uh, uh, and having that language make sense. I mean, obviously, there wouldn't be if we have the scrapping the cap on the payroll tax, which is what we would do, that people over 250000 should still be paying tax on their additional income. Uh, but we, we should make that clearer, and uh, it's something that we can add uh, as a possible clarification when we do take it up later this year. John in Long Beach, Mississippi, you are on the air with Representative Connor. 
Representative McConnell and uh, Tom Harmon, thank you very much for taking my call. I do appreciate it, and I appreciate your program. My, pro my, my question is very simple. Uh, Joe Alton Nemeth is on TV advertising for Medicare, saying we can get free medical, free this, free that. And, uh, and, this, and then, of course, we'll get a kickback of $140 if we qualify through our Social Security. My question is this. What does Social Security have to do? What does our retirement for, at our age have anything to do with medical, with the, uh, our medical program? John, my understanding is it's completely separate. I mean, there's there's uh, Medicare, Medicare, and and that's uh, a program, and then you get your Social Security benefits, uh, uh, regardless of that. Uh, I don't know if you're talking about Medicare Advantage advertising, that's what he's talking but about. I, yeah, yeah, but I I don't I can't see an argument for why it would affect Social Security off the top of my head. I mean, Tom, I don't know if you. Uh, have a sense of why now, that the, the way it works is is you know when you go on social security and medicare you can have the the you know 100 or 200 dollars a month depending on your income level uh cost of medicare deducted from your social security automatically and with medicare advantage you know this this scam program that that the republicans introduced in 2005 medicare part c you know supposedly uh, which is not medicare it's private insurance from private corporations and because they retain the right to throw people off coverage, to deny coverage, to hit people with surprise billings, um, a lot of people, you know, elders get into this, and it's really hard to get out of Medicare Advantage and get back into Medicare. Once you've gone into Medicare Advantage, you're kind of locked into this corporate system. And then as you get older and sicker, you really get screwed. And, and because it's so profitable, these companies are, are saying, well, and, you know, you won't have to have deductions from your Social Security to pay for Medicare. Oh, and we can even give you money back and we'll pay for hearing aids and we'll pay, you know, and they give you all this peripheral stuff. But if you get sick and go to the hospital, you can get hit with thousands of dollars in, in hospital bills that you wouldn't get if you had a good Medigap plan and just regular normal Medicare. Yet uh, a little over a quarter of all Medicare recipients have bought this sales pitch, which they're aggressively pushing. And, and the result is that the Medicare uh, fund pays a hell of a lot more per person for Medicare Advantage by reimbursing these insurance companies for all their expenses. And, and there's mind-boggling fraud in this. I'm, this is my next book. It'll be out in six months. And, I've, and I just spent you know, a year researching this. And it's just incredible, uh, the scam of Medicare Advantage. And that's what he's referring to. So, well, uh, well, end, thank end you, Tom, for that explanation <laughs> on, the, on the deduction. Yeah. There's, not, there's not a single sentence I could add in, in addition to that excellent explanation. I'm looking forward to getting your book. Uh, when it comes and, out, and, and I agree with and your the colleague, sentiment completely. And your colleague, Mark, Mark Pocan, is right with me on this because he's been going through this trying to get his mother out of Medicare Advantage and back into Medicare. And, you, could, you know, I, I'm sure he'd be glad to tell you war stories. Uh, but back to our phone calls, okay? Uh, David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Congressman, One minute to the break. Um, how can we build on the uh, last election? Um, the, the Georgia election should prove that... Um, ground roots, grassroots uh, organizing and door-to-door uh, -door efforts are superior and that uh, we can push forward and uh, get, battle through such horrible problems in Georgia. We should do it in Ohio and other states because Ohio's going to, uh, Portman's going to retire. So uh, we need that kind of direction. What, what's your opinion? David, you're absolutely right. I mean, Stacey Abrams, of course, did a brilliant job in organizing at a grassroots level, and I think it shows that you can't just organize during the presidential campaign. You have to have uh, a leadership and infrastructure that is registering voters, organizing well before the election, and that's what she she did, and it led to uh, President Biden winning that state and led to uh, Ossoff and Warnock winning that state. I'm optimistic about Ohio. I've urged Tim Ryan to, to get into that race. Uh, Tim uh, and I did the $2,000 a month bill, and I think he's going to do it. So that, that gives us a good shot. That is that is great. Tim and I both uh, addressed an audience in Los Angeles a few years ago and um, had dinner together. He's a, he seems like a decent guy. He really Congressman is. Kana, yeah, he really is. And, and a meditator, <laughs> as am I. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Larry in uh, 29 Palms, California. You're on the air with Representative Connor. Good afternoon, gentlemen. One of the things that I'm really concerned with is the Electoral College. And the reason I say this is because if you look, Trump is going on a nationwide campaign tour and if we even if we make it so he can't be reelected it'll be his kid but he's going to start campaigning now so i would think that getting rid of the electoral college has to go at the top of the list because the more people that vote the dems win the less people that vote the republicans win well, Gary, I agree with you on the challenge of the Electoral College. I think as a practical matter, the best way to get there is this compact of states that uh, says that uh, you, the state will vote for whoever the popular vote winner is. And we just need uh, enough states to get to 270 uh, to, as a practical matter, uh, make the Electoral College uh, uh, and, and no longer uh, operative. But uh, while we work on that, we have to continue to, to work on uh, creating uh, economic opportunity uh, in these battleground states and registering our voters and organizing uh, because the 270 compact is something that may take years. Uh, and I agree with you, while we would win almost every national election, the Electoral College and the structure of the Senate uh, make it much more competitive. And we have to just uh, understand that's the reality and uh, operate under it. Uh, has has there been any discussion in the Progressive Caucus about doing what the GOP did back in the late 70s, early 80s, which is identifying and targeting a half a dozen low population states where media costs are low and just going in and flooding the zone, basically, to try to flip red states blue? Yes, there actually has. And, and, and not just with candidates, with a sense of let's create uh, massive jobs there. I mean, it's much easier to create a lot of jobs in a state like Wyoming and try to make an impact than in a state like Texas. Let's try to register uh, voters. Let's try to have a great infrastructure. So there is a thought about uh, can we target uh, five, six key states and really show uh, that uh, a progressive vision can win and take some of what Stacey Abrams did in organizing and, and combine that with economic development and try to flip a few states. I think that is a, a constructive effort given the, the constraints. We can long-term work towards the compact of 270, uh, but if it, you know, we're not the constitutional amendment, we just don't have the votes. And so uh, we have to, at the same time, recognize the reality and work towards winning in that system. Yeah, I think you know Montana, Wyoming, North and South Dakota. Um, I think I think they're less red than than we think. Uh, I, I may be wrong on that. Uh, maybe they're just right. uh, you know pickled yeah. in Fox News, but but I, but you know, and it wouldn't cost that, that. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Go ahead. And Montana is in particular, I think, is the state. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton carried Montana. We forget that, but uh, I mean, it's, it's not a state that is out of uh, out of reach. And Chris in Humphrey, Arkansas, you are on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello. Uh, 
SBIR, Small Business Innovation and Research Grant, was destroyed by the Tea Party in 2011. Am I going to see that restored in my lifetime? Chris, thank you for raising that. I mean, it's one of the uh, best programs, SBIR, what it was uh, intended for is to provide uh, loans, to provide uh, grants for innovative small businesses, things that were going to innovate in clean energy jobs, in advanced manufacturing, in biomanufacturing. This is the type of productive investment that not only helps communities create jobs, but is competitiveness, helps our competitiveness. And so uh, my view is we need to focus on that kind of investment in the reindustrialization of America and help it create new businesses in America. And I do think that the Biden administration is going to have a bold proposal to uh, increase not just SBIR, but uh, the SBA more broadly in small business loans. Barry in Montague, Massachusetts, you are on the air with Representative Khanna. Hi, um, I'm just calling because uh, I'm curious. I've read reports about uh, President Biden signing in lease, uh, oil leasing agreements for drilling off of the coast. And there's supposedly like 21 leases that he endorsed really early on. And I'm very curious as to what is going on with that. And why would. Oop, I'm sorry. I. I thought Sorry, he was I'm, done. Ha- I'm happy to, to look into that and get you an answer. I'm going to be chairing the Environment Subcommittee of Oversight. Um, you know, I'm aware that he uh, has banned the uh, drilling on federal property, as he said he would, and he has uh, made sure that he's canceled the pipeline. But I hadn't heard about uh, the leases you're referring to. Uh, I don't know, Tom, if, if you have, but I'm happy to look into that and get you an answer. I'm happy to get you an answer. details. Great. Judy in Raleigh, North Carolina, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Hello, afternoon, Representative and Tom. Thank you so much for taking my call. So my issue is that 53 women are murdered every month on average in the United States. 57% of mass shootings involve intimate partner, domestic violence, current or former. When is uh, when after COVID will the Violence Against Women Act be reauthorized? And are you looking at studying violence against women? Because one in six women is a victim of sexual assault. And in, and in a study done by the National Crime Victimization Survey, they uh, have numbers that 600 women a day are either raped or sexually assaulted in the U.S. Well, Judy, thank you for sharing those very sobering statistics. Uh, we absolutely need the CDC to be studying the uh, epidemic of gun violence and specifically how it affects uh, gender and, and race and look at concrete steps that we could take, such as red flag laws that uh, allow people to uh, go to a court and uh, have a ruling that someone is a danger to them or to uh, the community or their family and be able to take that uh, gun from them uh, before they actually uh, cause harm. Uh, I, I, I'm confident we're going to have a reauthorization of the Violence uh, Against Women Act, partly because President Biden was uh, the author uh, of that act. And so uh, we, we will have that reauthorization, but we need to make sure it's stronger and combined with gun laws and, and uh, see authorization to study the issue and make recommendations. Sean in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, Congressman and Tom. I wanted to know if there's going to be an investigation into Operation Warp Speed, specifically regarding the uh, COVID vaccine and how they were awarded. There was a company, Anovio. They were first in line for the vaccine, yet they've been stalled by the FDA and other companies and allowed the other companies to get in front of them. And with all the people that died, I don't think that's right. Well, Charles, thank you you for raising it. Uh, I'll raise it with Carolyn Maloney, who's the chair of our oversight committee. And I do think it it should be looked at how those uh, uh, funds were distributed. I mean, the irony is that Pfizer, which was first uh, out to to come up with the vaccine, my understanding is took no money from uh, Warp Speed. So the question is, where did that money go? What what, what was the criteria that was used for it? uh, And how effective was it? It seems to be a very reasonable thing to investigate and our oversight committee would have jurisdiction over that so i will raise it with the committee 
We have 35 seconds to the break, Congressman. There was a piece in the New York Times a, a day or three ago about all this money that seems to be missing from various federal programs, and nobody knows where it went. Um, uh, the question, you know, did some of this go into the pockets of Trump and his cronies? Are you guys looking into that? We absolutely will. I mean, for all of the Republican now concern about deficits and wasteful spending, I mean, there was no oversight uh, when uh, Trump's uh, the administration was in charge, and now that we do have the uh, oversight uh, ability, subpoenas, uh, and an administration that will comply, we are absolutely going to investigate that. Good. That's great. And uh, Bill in Union Pier, Michigan. Bill, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, Tom, Representative Rokhan. Is there anything on the docket in the future legislative session to address the issue of pay-to-pay pay-to-play politics, PAC money, donations? And will legislation addressing this issue, if passed by the House and Senate, end up in the judiciary? Well, Bill, it's absolutely imperative that we have first fundamental campaign finance reform, which H.R. 1 is going to propose to uh, try to get uh, private money out of our politics, to overturn Citizens United, uh, to increase small dollar contributions. But I think more broadly, what we need is a corruption agency, an independent corruption agency that investigates the executive branch or Congress uh, that has quasi-independence. And Elizabeth Warren proposed this. Uh, Most other mature Western democracies have this. Uh, We shouldn't rely on Congress investigating Congress or uh, politicians investigating each other. Let's have a professional independent branch to get at this pay-to-play issue. Joe, in Ontario, uh, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yeah, Representative Khanna, the windfall elimination provision in Social Security puts about a 40% penalty on those of us who change careers to become public servants. I'm a retired teacher, and I am subjected to that rule. I feel that we're going to lose Congress in 2022 due to partisan gerrymandering, and we have to do everything we can to make changes to Social Security, voting rights, and other progressive polity objectives while we have the opportunity. Would you be amenable to sponsoring the revocation of the windfall elimination provision? Well, Joe, I'm already on it. I, I forget who's leading that, but that is uh, uh, something on the radar of Democrats. You shouldn't lose your Social Security uh, if you are uh, going from teaching to some other profession or vice versa. Uh, that's just fundamentally uh, unfair, and we do have to fix it. I'm, uh, I, I'm hopeful and optimistic that we will keep control of Congress, but uh, it is your right that Uh, When you have both chambers and the uh, presidency, uh, we need to act and act boldly uh, and not uh, squander any day where where we have uh, this opportunity. Kimon in uh, Dayton, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Khanna. Yes, um, I'd like to know. Well, first of all, I'm a uh, retired teacher and uh, we when I was teaching, we had kids who had to go through the the metal detector. All the students had to go through the metal detector. If a student uh, did not go through the metal detector and ran around it, that student would be removed from school. So I want to know why is it that these Congress folk who refuse to go through the metal detector are not subject to the sergeant of arms going to get them and removing them from the House floor? Why doesn't that happen? Well, it will happen now, and I agree with you. I mean, members of Congress are not special. It's a workplace. We ought to comply with the rules. That's why when you have to go vote, and, and you vote, like any, you go through a metal detector, you give your keys, you give your phone. It takes uh, two minutes, literally. Uh, that should be the requirement. Fortunately, Speaker Pelosi has put a fine. It's $5,000 automatic uh, deduction, the first offense, $10,000 the second offense. So uh, I think that has uh, largely deterred members from doing that. And since she imposed those, I haven't heard of cases of members uh, trying to circumvent it. But if they do, then we need to increase the penalties. Larry in San Francisco, you're on the air with Representative Connick. Good morning. I'm a lifelong Democrat, and I'm just wondering if we really think it's a smart strategy to means test a $1,400 check when Georgia voted two senators in on the promise of $2,000 checks for everyone. These are survival checks, not stimulus checks, and we didn't uh, scrimp at all when we gave the money to the corporations six to eight months ago. 
Barry, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, we've spent a total of about $8 trillion on uh, uh, COVID relief. And so trying to engineer and sit there and quibble over $600 or quibble over whether this is going to be a cutoff at 150000 or 100000 maybe that saves $100 billion in the context in the context of what we spend uh, on the corporations and other institutions, uh, that is certainly not worth betraying our promise to the American people. It is not worth the hurt of working families being left out. And finally, uh, the economists are telling us you've got a low interest rate, low inflation environment. Uh, I, what I don't understand is what problem are uh, the conservatives trying to solve for in this kind of environment. We don't have inflation. There's no evidence of consumer prices going up. There's no evidence uh, because in a, a pandemic, you have deflationary impact on, on currency supply, on money supply. So uh, you're absolutely right. And, and the two things the Progressive Caucus are standing firm on, the $15 minimum wage and getting the checks out without further means testing. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Uh, good morning, Tom and Congressman Khanna. Thank you both for the town hall. Um, Congressman Khanna, uh, on the same subject regarding the $2,000 survival checks, you know, Chris Hayes had a discussion with Senator Kane the other night, and uh, Senator Kane, of course, being a, a face of failed centrism, was arguing for the so-called targeting of these checks. Uh, and to his credit, Hayes pointed out to Kane that if he was so concerned about a few people getting money that they didn't need, that money is going to be recovered next year when they file taxes. And furthermore, Congressman Khanna, According to Andrew Perez at the Daily Poster, the metric that would be used to target these checks is income from the year of 2019, which was, was before the pandemic started. So, Congressman Khanna, as you say, can we once and for all bury these ineffective, disingenuous centric positions and get on ASAP with the work of getting lifelines to uh, so many struggling Americans? Thank you, Congressman. And if I could add to that, Congressman, um, could you please riff a little bit about what means testing is and how Republicans keep trying to use it to convert programs into welfare programs that can then be sliced and diced and and ceilings dropped on them and and, uh, block granted? You're absolutely right, Tom. And and Jeff, you said it, I thought, uh, perfectly. Uh, The the, the reality is, first of all, that the the means testing that they're talking about, $50,000 for an individual, $100,000 for a family, there are people who make $60,000, $70,000 who either have had their hours cut uh, or have kids uh, and are struggling to make ends meet. So it's not like that the the means testing that they're talking about uh, is for uh, families that are uh, just making a lot of money. I mean, they're, they're talking about cutting out certain working families, talking about cutting out uh, middle class and uh, families that are struggling to make ends meet. Now, the, the Tom, I think you're absolutely right that this has been the problem, the failure, I think, of the Democratic Party is we had all these technocrats that got in that thought they could engineer to, to nickel and dime and save money here and there uh, and, and try to means test things as opposed to having the universalism that was the LBJ FDR tradition. The consequence of that, if anyone wants to, to know, should read Arlie Hochschild's Strangers in Their Own Land, where she documents how working class Americans basically uh, are opposed to the government because they resent that the money is either going to who they think are the very rich or going to the poor. And of course, it's interlaid with race, where they think the money is going to poor black people uh, or immigrants. What we have to do to try to pierce that is to have as much universality in the program so that people think that they're benefiting and we can build a broad coalition. So the it is so detrimental to the opportunity to build a broad coalition to means test this and further the polarization that sociologists like Hochschild have, have documented. Kent in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Uh, Kent, we just have a minute to the break. You got a quick one here? Yeah, real quick, uh, because of the uh, Republican shenanigans and voter suppression, would it help to declare uh, national elections a national holiday? And I know since you have both houses of Congress and the White House, you could do it permanently, couldn't you? Kent, you're absolutely right. Uh, Bruce Ackerman, a law professor at Yale, has been calling for this, and James James Fishkin, uh, they call it Deliberation Day, make it a national holiday. And they even think make it a patriotic day where people would have town halls and communicate and, and really celebrate the, the vibrancy of our democracy. And it wouldn't obviously penalize the working class and students and the uh, folks who uh, can't get, 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 get to work on time. So I, 
I think it's a very sensible idea. Coming up on 45 minutes past the hour, Congressman Ro Khanna is with us in our progressive national town hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program. He represents the 17th District of California, Silicon Valley area, and is a vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Khanna in just a moment. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's our national progressive town hall meetings. Stick around. We'll be right back with Congressman Ro Khanna. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Joe in Cupertino, California, you are on the air with your congressman. 5150, I love that. I just love that. At any rate, I'm calling today about Social Security. I mean, I'm 60 years old, and I remember, I don't know, Reagan said we got to pay more on Social Security taxes. And so I've been working my whole life. I just started retired from the, my employer. I get a small little pension. I'm waiting to collect Social Security. But my concern is unemployment's so high. Why don't we return Social Security back to 65? And so the youth can get a job. I mean, they're letting people go left and right, and the employment is super high. I can't work anymore. I can't lift patients up. I used to be a paramedic. I can't lift. I'm 60 years old, and my kids are in high school. They can't find a job. If they were to get a degree, what would they be able to do with it besides work at 7-Eleven? I don't know. So I think to reverse this, we should try to do this, uh, reverse this Republican Depression 2.0. And by, just in closing, it's sad that I can't go to Washington to visit you because I don't feel comfortable in the rotunda. Thank you, Joe. Well, I- I appreciate that. I, I, I hope you'll come to, to Washington. I mean, right now it's a militarized zone, and, and my hope is that this isn't going to stay, this permanent fencing, and that we can return the capital to what it once was. Uh, and, and I'm confident that we should be able to do that, but it's a very sad for democracy. Your point about Social Security is absolutely right. I mean, at a time where we have, uh, first of all, people in their 50s and 60s being displaced, being laid off, uh, having uh, uh, their careers cut short, uh, the last thing we want to do is raise the age. What we need to do is make it uh, easier for people to have a dignified retirement if at 55 or 60 they, uh, they lose their job. And to your point, that we want uh, room for the next generation. So uh, I think uh, at the very least, we should, this is an argument for not uh, raising the age of, of, age of Social Security retirement. Robert in Cathedral City, California, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Yes, Representative uh, Rokana. My suggestion on the COVID relief package is that if the Republicans don't want to accept a $1.9 trillion package, then the Democrats should tell them that if they have to go it alone, they'll increase the package to $3 trillion. I'm sure the Republicans would more than gladly accept $1.9 trillion over uh, the Democrats' increasing it to three trillion if they have to go it alone thank you time to play time to play hardball well i i i'm i'm pleased that president biden so far has held his ground on 1.9 i think what the republicans are hoping is that we put down 1.9 and they put out 600,000 and then as often happens there's some compromise where democrats go down to 1.1 or 1.2 uh and so far that's not the the way this is playing out i mean president biden and uh, Schumer and Pelosi have said, no, this is not some starting offer. This is our uh, what we need. And so as long as we do that, 
uh, we'll be fine. But if we wanted to play the negotiating game, then you're right. We should have started at three trillion, which is what the House passed with the Heroes Act. Do you do you see that? Uh, do you think this is all going to work out? This is going to pass through the House? I do. My concern is whether the minimum wage is going to be in it, and my concern is on what your callers have been raising about the means testing. Those are the two things that I'm most concerned about in terms of the final passage. Should people be calling the members of Congress to lobby for this? Well, people should be calling to, 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 to express their opinion, in my view, that uh, uh, that $15 a minimum wage is, is critical and, and, and mobilizing for that, and people should be expressing their opinion on means testing. Thank you. Taking your calls for the hour. Dale in Springfield, Missouri. You're on the air with Representative Kana. Congressman, glad to hear you. If you want to do something for the little man, do away with Reagan's last shot at us and do away with the tax on Social Security. By the time you take $140 out of my $1,300 a month Social Security, that's my electric bill. Thank you, Dale. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I think what we ought to be doing is uh, having the tax on people uh, uh, making over 250000 uh, and then using that to increase Social Security benefits, and that would probably cover uh, the, the tax that you currently pay if we increase the, uh, the Social Security benefits. So that's one way of uh, uh, providing uh, uh, relief to you. But I agree with you. We have to look at how do we make Social Security work for working in middle-class folks and uh, have people who are multi-millionaires pay more in Social Security tax. Well, and before 1983, Social Security revenue, well, your, your Social Security benefits were not taxable. And uh, I think, you know, his point is, let's just go back to that. Let's, you know, reverse what Reagan did. Um, but anyway, uh, John in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. John uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You're on the uh, Representative Connor, this is the first time I've called. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, looking at our economy and, you know, how to how we can recover. And I, and I kind of look at from the people from the, who are at the bottom already. And, you know, and I have a, a higher degree in finance. And um, I look at those who are at the bottom. Usually can be, be those who um, who are already in debt collection and more specifically with their, their college loans. Now, I know that I've heard talk about uh, President Biden discussing 50000 or ten thousand. Actually, I think I heard him talk ten thousand. I hear others talking fifty thousand. Um, you know, some of these people who are in this debt collection are already are in for lot more than that. What's going to happen to those people? I mean, I, I know there's not a bill made, but that, this is a concern. Yeah, this has crippled a whole generation. It really has. It's it's made it hard for people to buy a house. And you talk to folks, even some members of Congress who have the the debt they can't uh, start don't want to start families uh not wanting to start businesses uh it, it's made one of the reasons why the, ne- the next generation is so skeptical of the american dream and uh the president has the executive authority to start forgiving loans and what elizabeth warren and chuck schumer's plan calls for is people under 125,000. so this is not folks who've gone to my district and taken out student loans and then made hundreds of thousands of dollars they're, they're fine but for people who are struggling we ought to forgive it and uh, that's uh, something that the president can do and should do greg in detroit michigan you're on the air with representative connor hello oh, uh, thank you for taking my call um i was wondering um uh after the uh, hopefully after the COVID release bill is passed, I was wondering if, if there's any thought to um, uh, as a way to show the American people that uh, Congress, the Democratic Party is working in Congress for people. They passed like some clean bills, uh, relatively simple clean bills to show progress. Say like the gentleman uh, referenced earlier, uh, voting days, national holiday. Um, another one would be just a simple bill. Corporations are not people. They did not fight and die for this country, so they are not people. Money is not free speech. And, and uh, remove the uh, restriction on the post office. Um, I was just wondering your thoughts. Or, or repeal the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Greg, I, I, I like uh, uh, most of those ideas. Uh, the uh, 
challenge is we did a lot of that in the House last time, and it went to die in the Senate. And so we can do that again in the House this time. Uh, the key is going to be, uh, are we going to get 60 votes in the Senate? Are we going to eliminate the filibuster and get it on 51 votes? Or are we going to able to be able to get it in reconciliation? Which, again, not to sound like a broken record, why the $15 minimum wage fight now is so important. Because if we don't do it now with reconciliation, yes, the House can pass it three months from now, but the Senate is just going to hold it up. Right? So the things we need to get through that we really want to pass, it's not just messaging, we've got to get it done uh, through the reconciliation where we can pass it in the Senate and actually get it to the president's desk. Karen in Pemberton, New Jersey. One minute to the end of the hour, Karen. Quick one, please. Yes. Um, good afternoon. I wanted to bring up, uh, because of the means test with the COVID relief, my situation was I was a state employee. My position was eliminated due to COVID, and I had to put in for my retirement earlier than expected in order to not lose my pension. Therefore, I wasn't able to collect unemployment, but it decidedly impacted my income, which is now totally different than what my 2019 income was. I haven't heard many people talk about this, but I think there's, I'm not the only one in this situation who was forced into an early retirement that negatively impacted us. Is there any... Thank you, Karen. Let's, oh, I'm Karen, sorry. Thank you. I, I, sorry, sorry, sorry for what happened to you. Thank you for having the courage to share your story, but that's exactly why we can't be means testing uh, these checks. That's exactly your story has happened to millions of Americans. You had a higher income in 2019, you were forced into retirement or you had to take cuts in hours, uh, and now uh, you're uh, having a hard time making ends meet. And that's why we need to get you the survivor checks. Yeah, amen. Congressman Connor, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's always great having you on. Always a pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.